0: Hi, I'm Rev. Carol Saunders, host of The Spiritual Forum. I'm here with a lot of interesting people who are consciously walking the spiritual path, experiencing and expressing the divine in unique ways and through unique lenses. Everyone here has wisdom to share and an interesting story to tell, all to inspire you on your spiritual path. Welcome to The Forum. Welcome everyone to The Spiritual Forum. So glad you're here. I want to remind you to leave a positive rating review if you love this podcast, and if you feel like donating to the cause, you can do that at thespiritualforum.org. And also, if you have any ideas about topics, if you have an interesting spiritual experience or experience with God that you'd like to share on the, some interesting journey that you've had, please email me at revcarolsonders at gmail.com. Today, I'd like to introduce Thomas Sheehan. He earned his BS and PhD degrees in physics from MIT. And during his 45 year career as a research physicist, he worked for Bell Telephone Laboratories, the National Bureau of Standards, various research corporations, United States Department of Energy, Argonne Laboratory, National Laboratory, and the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. A lifelong Catholic, Dr. Sheehan is the Director Emeritus of the Institute of Theological Encounter with Science and Technology, which focuses on demonstrating the compatibility of faith and science as paths toward knowledge. He's the author of the recently published book, Every Win, God, Symmetry, and Time. So that's my introduction. Welcome, Tom. I'm glad to have you. Thank you. Uh,
1: Happy to be here.
0: Yeah, you can just call me Carol, <laughs> and if people okay. say, what should I call you? We, um, we should have established yes. that in the beginning. But mm-hmm. yeah, I'm glad to have you here. I think my audience knows that I do my best to read the books of my guests on the show, and I've, I've read most of Dr. Sheehan's book, and it's really, really fascinating. It's kind of mind-boggling, and I think it really kind of pushes us to, to go into another dimension of thinking, another way of looking at God and reality and look at the paradigms that we're stuck in. And I think most people who listen to me also know that I'm really about awakening from the paradigms that we're stuck in. So anyway, Tom, I think what I'd like to do is just give you a few minutes to tell us your personal s- spiritual story and, you know, what your relationship is with God, whatever it is that you want to share, and then we'll get into, you know, your book and your studies and all sorts of things about about God being outside of time. So,
1: Okay. Well, the first thing I want my readers to understand is do not be afraid of science. Science is not the enemy of religious faith. Science is a partner to religious faith. That the way that knowledge advances is by this parallel path, this working together of science and religion. So you ask about my background, and I think that is probably a cornerstone of my background, is that that has come through my entire path of life to keep science and religion in parallel and working together as partners. And that's a very important message in the book that I really want people to be comfortable with is that, okay, here's the hotshot scientist, all these degrees, et cetera. Physicist, boy, that scares people, that single word right there. (laughs) But it isn't something to be afraid of because science is not the enemy of religious faith. It's a partner of religious faith. So I felt that way all my life, and as I uh, grew up, went to college, in my career, and so forth, I have again and again found that those who criticize religion and pretend that science is somehow superior to it, every single time they turn out to be wrong, they turn out to be uh, bragging, they turn out to be overreaching or overspeaking or whatever, and that isn't the way it is at all. And as a result, throughout my life, I've been comfortable in religious faith, I'm Catholic in my particular case, and it, everything makes sense. The uh, understanding that religious theology and faith bring to the world we live in is just wonderful. And it helps to have some knowledge of science, too, because you can see how the science supports your religious faith. Uh, A nationally known speaker, this good friend of mine, a certain father, Bob Spitzer out in California, has emphasized the incredible beauty of science and how it points again and again and again to God, the creator. And science doesn't quite force you to believe in God, but it sure does point that way. And his phrase is, you must make a little leap of faith. Mm. Well, to a lot of people who are afraid of science, they think it's a big leap of faith and many young people stay away from faith because they think science is somehow um, opposed. And if I can get people to stop thinking that way, but to understand that science and faith are compatible and all you need is that little leap of faith, I think a lot more people will have a greater uh, degree of comfort with science And they will be comfortable also in knowing that their own religious faith fits in quite well in the modern world and is not something that they have to uh, hide or be ashamed of or be afraid about. So, this is where I'm coming from. And um, my lifelong journey has been a good one because of the fact that science and faith have been partners all along, and I love them both.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. I I think it's so interesting that we have an either or approach to these like you're either you're either in the science camp or the the faith camp and they complement each other so well and i always say i always say i may be wrong but i always say that sometimes i think science is a little behind a little behind but the mystics know you know so there's there's they're coming up with their equations that can kind of detail what we already kind of know in in reality I, that's how it looks to me but i also know that science scientists can also be very like what's the word snobbish arrogant you know like religion doesn't have a place here like it doesn't god doesn't belong here we we we're god <laughs> i think there's a lot of there's a lot of we're god about scientists and and i think that the material in your book for me it really puts everyone in their right place and i don't mean that in a bad way i mean it's like okay we have been we live in these really interesting paradigms, which I want to talk about. In fact, let's just go into that. Because you say in your book, our models of God are deficient. And in our current working paradigm, current world paradigm, we confine God to time. I think this is one of your biggest theses in your book, the idea that we confine God to time, just as we humans are confined to time. So can you just share what the implications of that are? The, the, the fact that we we put God in the same box that we're in.
1: That is a very important point. And the reason I named the book Every When is because I wanted the reader to see that's a word I've never heard of. That's a word that doesn't exist in English, French, Spanish, Chinese, or whatever, because we all have the concept of everywhere. That's a very convenient, comfortable word. But none of us are capable of grasping all time together. We can't do it. Therefore, the word every when doesn't exist in human terminology. But God has no trouble at all seeing all time together, and he is present to all time. Now, we're taught that in religion classes, but it doesn't sink in. It doesn't mean anything. Everybody still has the images that are built around the restraints that we live in. We humans are bound by time. Time's linear. It's one directional. We can't get around it, can't do anything about that. But we think, therefore, that God has to be that way too. And it's just not so. And so what I'm trying to say to people is, step, take a step back, take a step upward in your thinking, and don't restrict God in this way. Uh, one of my chapters is called, Time is the Falsest God of All. And we all know that the Commandments are very clear. Thou shalt not have a false God before me. To assume that God is bound by time is to put a false God before God. Huge mistake. But people do it because we can't think any other way. We haven't got a language, our culture, and everything keeps telling us that time is absolute. And it just isn't. And if we can get past that, if we can understand the limitations that we are under, and not bind God by those same limitations, then our understanding and our relationship with God can grow and be greater.
0: So the idea that we constrain God to time, though, I mean, how does that look? I I know that we use a lot of time words. And you point out in your book, it's something I never thought of before, but that you cannot speak, you cannot speak. Our language is all about time, because once we put a verb in there, It's an action, which is all about time. Like something is happening now, now it's not. And so we don't even know how to speak in ways that transcend time. But the idea that God is in the time constricted by time, what what does that mean to people? I mean, what does that matter?
1: Well, you get bound by the idea that God has to do things in sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got a sick friend. Who's going in for an operation? So you pray for them. Well, unbeknownst to you, God can answer your prayer by having a child conceived in 1960 who grows up to be a brilliant doctor. Mm -hmm. We've got this disconnect. You say, well, how can I pray for something to have happened before I ever heard of it? Hey, man, God's smarter than you. Okay. He can do stuff that you can't and that I can't. And that is something that humans need to realize. The ability to grasp all time at once is unique to God. No human has that ability. And it frees him from boundaries that we have to live with. And in asking people to recognize this, I'm asking them to not get out of their own boundaries, because we can't, we're humans, but appreciate that God isn't limited in the same way that we are.
0: I have recently been thinking that I can pray for something. Happening in the past, okay. So, like that's a that yep. would be another place that it's not limited. Like I can, like I've I've been playing with this. Like I don't I don't know what's happening, but like I I can pray for you know my my grandmother's mother or something like that. And I'm thinking absolutely,
1: yes. yeah. That,
0: that even though in my linear world she's gone, been long gone, and I never even knew her. There are stories about her in in my family you know, mythology, I guess, the -hmm. the stories that I I know she was in situations that perhaps she could use a little love or a little care. And so, I've been been playing around with praying for people or animals that have long passed. And Mm -hmm. even my own self, okay, so I've been playing with this too, even my own self, my own little child, like when I'm three or four or five or eight, you know, thinking about times where maybe... I was really sad or something really bad happened and and going and sending my prayers to her. Because I think that there's times where we're just going to walk around and every once in a while just feel something good. We feel support. We feel some wind at our back. And maybe that is somebody in the, quote, future
1: praying for us. That is entirely possible. And it's very difficult for the human mind to get a grip on it because of our sequential thinking about time. If you say, I pray that my grandfather will survive World War II, well, it sounds strange today. And maybe it's a prayer of thanksgiving that your grandfather did survive World War II, mm-hmm. but God can sort that out. Okay. Mm-hmm. He didn't have any difficulties handling things in different times. He's present to all time. Uh, these are so many different things that that boggle the the mind of a human that God just handles perfectly well. Now, notice that I haven't told you how God sees time. And the reason is that I don't know, because I'm limited by the same human uh, constraints that everyone else is. But I ask people to give God the freedom to not be bound by human constraints. And then all sorts of wonderful things can happen.
0: Okay. All right. So I think about all the the time words in the (laughs) Bible— And all the ways we refer to time in the beginning, and we talk about the Big Bang, that there was a, before the Big Bang was like the start of everything, and, you know, what was before that, and our mind kind of stops there. So I kind of like for you to talk a little bit about your ideas around, like, Genesis, the creation, let there be light, and such things, because... I think it's just really fascinating and it really will open up people's eyes. So can you talk about that?
1: Of course. Yeah. Um, It was St. Augustine in about the year 400 who pointed out that there is no such thing as time before God created. The first thing, according to uh, Augustine, was that God created space and time together. Um, People forgot that over the next 1500 years. And when Isaac Newton came along, they just took time for granted as though it's always there. Well, if you look carefully at our best ability to think about what God did, he didn't have to reach in and grab a bunch of mud and squeeze it and and move around and do all that kind of stuff. He thought up symmetry principles. And there is a symmetry principle that relates space to time. And the cornerstone of that relationship is light. So when the Bible begins by saying God said, let there be light, it was saying that God created light, and with it, space and time, and that was the beginning. That's when you can start thinking about running a clock. That's when you can ask questions like before and answer. But there is no before to talk about until God started creating.
0: I think that's so interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It makes so much sense. Yeah, well, uh, among other things, elsewhere in St. Augustine's writing, again, we're talking the year 400, uh, deals with um, the problem that people keep asking, what did God do before, Uh, etc. And um, so St. Augustine had a variety of wisecracks in there, but basically he insisted that there is no before God created. And this is so hard for human beings to imagine. And they think, what was God doing before? Well... If God was looking at a watch and thinking, what am I going to do tomorrow? Then God is constrained by time, inferior to time, less of a God than time is. And if you can throw that out the window and say God wasn't constrained by time, then God creates and creates time and makes it real. Now, a lot of physicists nowadays, uh, the late Stephen Hawking um, had this idea that the universe created itself. Mm -hmm. Well, from the symmetry principles, which were God's creation, God's thought, come the laws of conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, and several others. In those symmetry principles are the seeds of the laws of science, and therefore of the progression of all that happened in creation as time went forward. God understood and knew Maybe I should say, instead of the past past tense like new, is that he knows all that is going to happen, we're going to, is one of our words. God is present to all time. We think of what did happen, what's going to happen. This doesn't matter to God. So from the creation, that instant of making space and time together and making there, let there be light, then there was a progression of other things that took place. And some very fine physicists have written well about this and explained it. And um, it's a very nice description in physics. And if you now take the first chapter of Genesis and lay that alongside this uh, physics description, you can find certain parallels there, but not complete parallels. But what you have to realize is that when Genesis was written down, there were Devout and honorable people who were trying to understand what God was trying to say to them—they couldn't get it right. If God was talking about quarks and and uh, photons and, and uh, nuclei and things like that, that would had no meaning. And furthermore, once they did understand what God was trying to say to them, they had the problem of writing it down in a way that communicates to the reader, which is a tough job when you're dealing with something as difficult and as intricate as God's work in creation. So we have on the written page in Genesis 1, a lot of statements that are metaphorical, that are poetic, that are a way of conveying a terribly important truth. And that important truth is that God cares for his creation and for the beings that came forth from his creative work that leaves a lot of people disoriented because they want to have the word on the page be exactly true according to their language of today
0: yeah that's so limiting that, that can't happen <laughs> I and mean, that's so limiting it doesn't make any sense because it's like we wouldn't even understand those people. I mean, their culture is so different, you know, people. Exactly. And there's, there's no way we could even probably communicate. So to say that those words have to be perfect, I completely agree. I think that they're beautiful metaphor and poetry and truth is in there, you know. So it's not like just because it's metaphor and poetry that, that isn't true. And it's not just because it's not, you know, it has to be literal. It, it, it can be poetic, metaphorical and be conveying a very important message and telling us our history. That's how I
1: look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the people who have uh, pursued this in some depth have done a wonderful job of giving us the unity and the combination of both the words of scripture and nature and physics and the other uh, sciences. And uh, they've taken centuries to do this. But what they've come up with is a really good understanding of how these fit together. It's it's something that we can all be proud of if we say religion and science fit together. Well, they do. And when you read the words on Genesis 1, and then you read a physics book alongside it, you say, wait a minute, this doesn't look like the same. But it is, because what comes to you from the nature, from physics, chemistry, etc., is an appreciation of how magnificent God's creation is. And what comes to you from reading the first page of the Bible is the message that God loves us, loves his entire creation. And that's something that I think is something that um, we can be proud of, that we can appreciate it. That's different from saying we can understand it, we can give it back in detail or anything like that, because we can't. We're not that good. But we can appreciate what God has done and understand that there is a compatibility between uh, the descriptions we have of his creation, the descriptions that people had in ancient days, and the reality of God's love for all of his creation, including us.
0: Yeah, and I think any any way we refer to God is limiting. I mean, even the word God, even saying yes. him or his or he or she, or all, all this is limiting. We We cannot... We we just can't quite get it, so we're doing our best. So I know some people will say, "Well, is God a a being? Is God a, is God masculine?" And and you know, I think that's that's your way of of conveying you know the creator or the energy under all creation. We all have different ways, but none of us can ever really use human language to express some something that is so transcendent and beyond what we know. Do you agree?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, we are stuck with the need to express things in a language, in a culture. And if we want to communicate with one another, we have to agree on which language we're going to talk in, etc. There are religions who really don't like the use of icons. A picture of uh, a god or something like that is anathema to some religions because it... um is a narrow representation that tends to confine the reality. Um, when I look at an icon, I try to see it as a downward projection of the reality. Um, you know, Plato had that famous thing about the cave and so forth, where our existence is a higher level, higher dimensions, and what we perceive is only the shadow on the wall. I think that if we can um, understand, the difference between a higher reality and something that is an image, whether we thought it up on our own uh, or it is a, a, a painting that someone made, something like that, then we can be more comfortable with the use of limited images for unlimited reality.
0: So I'd like to kind of talk about some of the words that we use regularly when we look at scripture or we talk about We just talk about spiritual things like the word afterlife, eternal life. I was thinking about the word end times that Jesus talked about all the time. And I really wanted to get your feedback because I was thinking maybe end times actually just means the end of time. Like there's there's a point where time ends for us, and that's what the end times are. So what do you think about that?
1: Well, for each of us, time ends when we die. There comes a point, there is a human being that is more than just atoms and molecules. We're more than space and time. We are more than the simple um, natural pieces that are studied by physics, chemistry, biology, et cetera. We have additional properties, and I regard them as additional dimensions, but other people may not like the word dimension. It sounds like you're studying geometry or whatever, but these additional higher properties um, name a few: um, love, loyalty, um, honor. mercy, yeah,
0: compassion. These are think,
1: distinctly yeah. human characteristics that do not exist at the level of space and time, um, atoms and molecules. They're higher. Right. They're better. They're more. And when you die, the space and time drops off and goes away. But all that other part of you, the real person doesn't. That keeps that right on going. Now, you try to talk about this and you wonder what words can I use? And the first word we grab is afterlife. Well, the Christian uh, tradition going way back to like the first century has in it the phrase, life is changed, not taken away. And that change is to a life that is independent of, distinct from, and not restrained by time and space anymore. So it is a completely different life. But to label it with the word after is a way of a human being trying to reach back and hang on to that word time. Yes, I can see that. And to, to let go of the concept of time, then you must say that the life of all these higher functions that makes a human person real continues in a way that is Unrelated to time. It's a different form of existence. Well, as you pointed out before, verbs are action words. So if somebody says, Well, what happens then? <laughs> You've just introduced time once again, you know? And it's so difficult that these are the kind of things that if we realize this is what we're speaking of, then we have to be deferential to God's wisdom and not insist upon hanging in there with time in our image of heaven. And boy, is that hard to do because we are humans and we're all limited by this perception because everybody wants to know, okay, we're going to be in heaven, right? Yeah, what happens then? Well, if it's a form of life that is completely unrelated to time and space, then then the word then isn't right. It isn't relevant.
0: Then doesn't exist.
1: And, <laughs> um, yeah, what I say to people, and this is all in my later chapters, you don't have to believe what I say, but I'm asking you to think on your own to step up to that new level of appreciation. And throughout it all, the thing you can grab onto and hang on to is the assurance that God knows what he's doing and he loves us and he's not going to make mistakes. We humans make mistakes and we learn to live with them. But we must not assume that God is bound by our limits. So when we talk about this, we, we talk about this other form of life, and immediately everybody says, "Well, what's it like? You know give me an example. And now you're asking for a translation from some higher reality into the limited language of English, French, Chinese, or whatever. And that is limiting that greater reality, and trampling it into the the tiny little slice that is human language in space and time.
0: Yes, I see that, and I actually kind of find this comforting. I, I think it's interesting the idea that when we we lay down our bodies, when we you know quote die, we're moving into non time. Like we don't know what that is, but it's mm-hmm. it's like it seems very expansive. You know, it it seems like we. Like, we're, we're constricted in space-time, and that what happens, quote, next, or after, so <laughs> we can't even talk about it, is what, what happens when we die is our consciousness enters into non-time.
1: Exactly. I, I, find, yeah. I
0: find that really comforting. I mean, I find that… It's, it's like, because it seems very expansive, I guess, I'm, I'm, I'm talking while I'm thinking, but to me, it seems very expansive. And it's, it seems like when we drop in via birth, our souls drop in, that we're kind of moving from this infinite non-time into, into something that seems kind of bound, and, and that, that this world that we live in is constricted to space-time, and we learn how to navigate, and we learn how to do what we're doing, but then we're freed again
1: exactly right you are exactly right the this limitation of our culture language behavior everything like that, that we know and are comfortable with in our surroundings which are space and time constrains our ability to think and our ability to express it and speak and to say that there is more than this is a very familiar set of words uh, about our religious faith in what God has prepared, but we are really at a loss to discuss it, to share it with others, or in any way to uh, convey the real meaning of it.
0: yeah, I think the people talk about heaven like you know, golden streets and buildings yeah. and, and mm-hmm. it's all it's all like another spacetime con- <laughs> spot. yes yeah. yeah, and it's because it's the best we can do, but it makes me wonder because we're confined. okay, so here we are. In, out of wisdom, you say it's not, it was translated wrong. Like it didn't, like in the beginning wasn't the right translation that it was, that Genesis really is more like out of, out of divine wisdom. This space time was created. Yes. That's where we are now. And then all of time, (laughs) there's no time. All lives are going on. I can see like all these, okay, if there's no time, then is everybody's lives kind of happening in parallel? dimensions? (laughs) dimensions?
1: <laughs> this is one of these things that is very hard. We think about everybody getting together and standing around the forum or the auditorium and all together. And, you know, you'd have people like Charlemagne, um, Shakespeare, and others absolutely marveling at the way a modern toilet works. Right. You know, right I mean, right. there are these ridiculous anomalies that uh, would would be a subject of laughter because it implies that everybody's Time element has somehow joined into one time. Uh-huh. And that's something that we think of because we are limited by time. Right, exactly. And that's where these images come from. But if we can set that aside and say this is a life that is other, um, then we've made progress. We're more comfortable. We are uh, more willing to accept the reality of God and to look forward to a reality that we don't know about yet. And that's a real step. And it helps to get beyond the limitation of time. So this is something that um, you you, uh, say, well, gee, Tom, uh, you've gotten us on this pathway and gotten us interested. Now, how about explaining it to us? (laughs) And I start speaking in English from a culture that is the 20th, 21st century under constraints of what I see with my eyes and so forth. And I wind up doing a very poor job of it because of my limitations.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I'm trying to say to the reader, don't accept my limitations. Go find limitations of your own. All right? yeah. yeah. And let your mind imagine things that are beyond the comprehension that we have ever had. And don't worry about the difficulty of expressing it, because when you try to express it, you've uh, forced yourself into a language in order to communicate. And that's a, an obstacle, a barrier, a limitation. Yeah. But God doesn't have any of those uh, limitations, and we must never inadvertently impose our limitations upon God. That's a huge mistake. And truth is, a huge fraction of human beings make that mistake not only today, not only in centuries in the past, but we'll keep on making that same mistake for centuries into the future.
0: So like scientists who are, you know, they're kind of mapping what creation is, Mm -hmm. mapping physical reality. Right. And so then it's like, okay, now we know. Now we know. We used to think this, now we know this. And, And we used to think this, and now we know this. And there's this idea I think that we humans can can, can we're continually to know more and more and therefore there is no god. You know, it's like <laughs> because we know that that this didn't happen in 7 days or we know that I don't I don't understand how scientists don't get god at all, but the the idea that there's only well, you talk about it. You talk about materialism and the scientism, that we're stuck in this idea that there's just molecules and physical reality and, and we're not really able to grasp essence and and some consciousness, you know, beyond the physical. And I think that scientists are trying to grapple and, you know, make equations out of all of that thinking, I think, thinking ultimately that, you know, we're God. <laughs> and and they're still in the box. So that the point is, I'm not sure I'm very eloquent, but Scientists are all still working in this box of space time, which was created by God. So we'll, we're, we'll never be that because we're still stuck in the space, in the box, right?
1: Yes, indeed. Um, we in the box, scientists, physicists, and so forth, are really good at studying nature. Yeah. And there is always the issue of humility. Can I a great scientist with a PhD from a big university and a whole bunch of good stuff like that and publications and this that and the other awards and so forth can I remain humble enough to realize that all everything I know is minuscule compared to what God knows and what God has done both Einstein and Isaac Newton made statements along that line like Isaac Newton said he's like a a, a child playing Uh, on the sand of a shore. And Einstein uh, imagined himself as the tiniest of creatures in a vast universe. If scientists remain humble, then they can accept the reality that God is greater. However, if scientists get caught up in the things they're doing, and they're doing well, they're doing pretty good stuff they can inadvertently get the idea that what they know is all there is to know. Mm-hmm. And that mistake has led to uh, a lot of errors and a lot of sad images being projected upon people. And the saddest of those is the image that scientists are against religion. The, uh, uh, I think the word is hubris of thinking you're pretty good and um, many of my fellow scientists are suffering from that problem. Mm-hmm. But when a scientist remains humble, as Einstein did, as Newton did, then you don't try to imagine this finite, limited, small God. The, um, I think it's somewhere in the book I say that um, the very inferior and limited God that the atheists refuse to believe in is a God we don't believe in either. (laughs) The God we believe in is much more advanced and powerful. And that's an important distinction. When I say that nature points to God so that you only have to make a little leap of faith, uh, that is a correct statement. And it involves the understanding that as good as we are with our knowledge of nature, it is only a small percentage of knowing about God. But it's a step. It's some progress. It's better. And those scientists who have said, okay, now I know everything I need to know, unfortunately, they're making a kind of uh, uh, a sad mistake there.
0: Yeah, and that mistake's been made before. You know, I think some, can't remember who it was, but somebody said like in the 1890s that everything that was... Going to ever be I know. invented? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's been invented. Yeah, yeah. It's like really
1: somebody wanted to close the patent office. So some of year, like <laughs> about 1910 or 1900. they so we can, everything that's going to be invented has already been invented, so we don't need <laughs> a patent office anymore. Uh, yeah, this is this is a real problem that people have, and the fact that today's science is mighty good uh, is a temptation that people fall into all the time, and we see this especially with the insistence by some blocks of scientists on the perfection of um, the Darwinian theory of evolution, um, on the perfection of the quark uh, atom nucleon picture, so forth. Um, These things are people who've done really well in their field and carried it quite well to a high extent. But when they say this is everything, now we know it all, that's a mistake. Yeah. And I'm sorry that they do that. I'm doubly sorry that they get so much TV time, you know, to tell the the rest of the people in the world that incorrect view. But um, honestly, with some humility, you can really uh, gain a great deal of knowledge in science while still being humble enough to recognize that what you've done is only a small piece of God's knowledge. And that's very important.
0: I think it's really interesting that you bring up that both Newton and Einstein had humility because those are the, those are like the, the two icons. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. Two
0: icons of scientific yeah. discovery. I mean, yeah. they changed yeah. the world for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know that Einstein's discoveries have really hit yet <laughs> in terms of how, how we live our lives. Don't you think we're still kind of stuck in Newtonian, the Newtonian world?
1: Oh, pretty much. Yeah, You can go through your entire life um, uh, having only Newt- Newtonian science And that relativity plays almost no role in anything until you start moving with uh, some fraction of the speed of light. So it's easy to set um, Einstein aside. But when you do, then the people who are giving you pictures from the Hubble telescope or now the James Webb telescope or any of the things from distant galaxies, they would be giving you something that boggles your mind and you can't possibly comprehend. Yeah. So if you accept Einstein and all these things become more comprehensible, but you have to realize when you do so that you're on a much grander scale of light years and galactic distances that are quite different. But the physics holds together and it makes sense. And uh, it's, it, it, is, it, it is the best theory we've got. That's the thing to be remembered, whether it's quantum mechanics or um, Darwin or any of these, um, you go with the best theory you've got. You always push the limits and try to get a better theory. But at any point in time, you go with the best theory you've got. And one of the things that we should do in our present day and age is not look down upon the people of not just decades, but centuries or millennia ago, who went with the best theory they had. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ptolemy's um, astronomy of about the year 100 AD uh, really did carry the... uh, Uh, people uh, a great deal further. You know, uh, Christopher Columbus got to America using that kind of astronomy. Um, The things that the ancient Greeks did with uh, uh, Euclidean geometry and so forth, they built some fabulous buildings with that level of science and engineering knowledge. So we mustn't laugh at these old timers, but we can say, okay, we've moved on beyond that.
0: Yeah, and, today, and today's people are will be old-timers eventually.
1: That's just it, yeah. Right. The day is coming, I think, and I don't expect to live to see it, when the understanding of evolution uh, is understood in the framework of God's handiwork, that it will be seen that this was an incredibly clever and intelligent form of creation on God's part. And it wasn't just something that all happened just by random chance or anything like that, that we will someday see that guiding hand of God beneath the surface. And in this day and age, there's this argument going between people on different sides of of the issue. But I really believe that the day will come when we'll have a better understanding, not we, but our followers, our descendants, and we will look back on people of the 20th and 21st century, not with contempt, but with respect. Because in this day and age, people are doing the best they can with the best theory they've got.
0: So are you talking about the creationists versus the Darwinists? And they're, they're really not at odds. It's like, I think, perceived to be there, there's, there's this camp and there's that camp. But aren't they both looking at the same thing and just talking about it differently?
1: Well, I think they're both making the same mistake. Both okay. of them think that God is bound by time. Right. They both think that God has to do it in our style, in our understanding of time. So the, um, the atheists in this game say, oh, well, God can't be very strong because it took him so long to create the universe, billions of years. That's not a very powerful God. Well, the creationists come along and accept that premise. They accept that God had to work within time. And then they say, oh, well, we got it right here in the book that he did it in seven days. You know, but no, if they understood that time is a human limitation, then that whole argument would go away. And it's regrettable that it still sticks around. Um, uh, We've had Darwin for 150 years or so, and some uh, religious faiths have come to an accommodation with this, and others still uh, desperately hold out against it. But in the meantime, all the people over on the atheist side are thinking of a God who is limited and subordinate to time. And when they do that, they're disbelieving in a very feeble and inferior God. Mm-hmm. I can't really blame them for disbelieving in that feeble and inferior God, but I wish they'd pay attention to the real God. And that that's something that um, I hope that maybe my book will enlighten people a little bit and get them a little closer to appreciating the huge gulf between us and God.
0: Yeah. Very interesting. It is, I mean, you your mind can only you could hold on to so much, you know, to how how when you when you were in the box, what I call it the mm-hmm. box, the, yes. the space-time box, it's so hard to talk about something other than space-time. So so but both both Darwinism talks about billions of years and then the creationists talk about seven days. They're they're both talking about time. They're both talking about time. So mm-hmm. And, and I can't even I can't even grasp it. Like how, <laughs> you, I can't even grasp it. But I, I'm willing to kind of release it. You know.
1: Well, there's this fellow in Israel named Gerald Schroeder who was born in America, went to MIT and got a PhD. He was a few years ahead of me. I didn't know him personally, but he eventually went over to Israel and has lived there uh, his whole life. And he has a way of making those two camps compatible. Okay. But nobody understands it because he makes use of Einstein's theory of relativity.
0: Right, exactly. Now,
1: what Schroeder says is, and he follows a uh, a um, rabbinical teaching from about the 14th century that insists that creation was 24-hour days, uh, six 24-hour days, and so that's a cornerstone of his religious belief. Separately, he knows a lot of physics, and he knows about relativity, and he knows the uh, uh, 13 billion year history of uh, astronomy. And Schroeder says, okay, they have to both be true. Mm -hmm. My religion is true and my science is true. And now it's up to me to figure out how. And he did. He took the point of view that the author of the first chapter of Genesis was traveling on a light beam with the expansion of the universe. And thus the first day is about seven and a half billion years long. Mm-hmm. And the second yeah. day is about half of that, like three and three quarters. And the third day is half of that again. And by golly, he works out the creation all the way up through the plants and the animals, to humans in under six days. Okay, if people would read him, they would discover that this is an explanation of the fight between the atheists and the creationists. But nobody will, because the atheists are contemptuous of any attempt to bring in a religious point of view. And the creationists cannot understand the science mm-hmm. that Schroeder uses. And it's a shame that things, people of this quality are ignored and fights of that type continue because of the fact that people just are so limited in their perception and people cling to their limited perception and brush aside their opponents and wind up fighting for years and years and decades and centuries, all because they did not allow for the possibility that faith and science could be partners, mm-hmm. could work together.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I want to pivot back to when we were talking about heaven, or we're talking about after after <laughs> death,
1: mm-hmm. sure. being
0: moving into a place... <laughs> Of non-time, I'm just noticing all of my words that are confining. I know, right? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. You also talk about hell in your book, and I thought that was really interesting. Can you share that?
1: Sure. Um, again, I underline this with the the introductory uh, page before my whole section three, which says this stuff is speculative. This isn't rock solid physics like I was doing back up in the front of the book. Right. This is speculative, and by golly, Mister Reader or Miss Reader. Your speculations are every bit as valid as mine, okay? So, but I wanted to give this as an example of how one person equals me can think of this and invite other people to think as well. So the cornerstone Christian belief about hell is that it is the complete and total separation from God, the rejection of God, the refusal, the, the distancing, the, the, the separation, okay? So that's the cornerstone. And then I, in my uh, chapter on hell, I try to give an example of how that could be the case. Now, your typical run-of-the-mill medical professional will look at a person dying and in something measured in seconds, whether it be 100 seconds or 10 seconds or 1,000 seconds or something like that, they can tell the difference between this person is alive and this person is dead. Okay. That then becomes some kind of boundary to many people of the absence of an afterlife. So if you're a devout atheist, you're going to say, okay, a very short time after you die, you are truly dead. And from there on, it's just decay and nothing going on. So I introduced the idea of time dilation of biological time, where time stretches out in the um, perception of the person who is dying. And as the body decays, or as just the system is shut down, which could happen in you know what do you like ten seconds, hundred seconds, a thousand seconds, as this shutting down takes place, your consciousness, uh, the biological time slips longer and longer and longer, and it stretches out to what appears to be infinity or forever. Okay, so this separation from God. Uh, Because what happens is you are left holding on to space-time atoms and molecules only. Mm -hmm. You say, there is no other reality. This is all there is. This is all I'm going to have. Then your biological time stretches out forever. And this kind of image uh, of the separation from God, the terminal condition of never, ever, ever going beyond space-time is, in my picture... An example of hell because it's separated from God and you wind up with nothingness, oblivion zero. The body's completely decayed, and there's nothing left at all. And you never, ever, ever exist again. Um, I describe that as hell. Another person might read this and say, Oh, well, you left out the part about the devils with the angel or the pickaxes and the, or, and the, 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 <laughs> the pokers <fire. laughs> and so forth. Like and I say, You bet I left that stuff out because this image of these funny little guys in in red with pointy tails, is a way of joking about hell. Right. And it's not a good idea to joke about hell, because if you do, you get the impression that hell is just a cartoon. And I say, no, it isn't a cartoon. It's a real state. It's something beyond what we grasp or can understand, but it is the total separation from God. And if another person comes along and says, Tom, I read your chapter and I think it's bunk and it's hogwash, and here's my idea instead, I welcome that because people need to think at a new higher level. Yeah. But if I can move the needle far enough away from the guys with the green, uh, with the uh, red outfits and the pointy tails carrying the pitchforks, then I've accomplished something because I want people to see that the separation from God is a real state that is really bad.
0: Yeah, so here we are in it. We're here in the box, and we're here yes. with time, but we're right. not separate from God. So, because I was going to say, you could also say being stuck in in space time could be hell, but only if you are separate
1: from God. Would you? Well, if you make the decision that you want nothing to do with God, you want nothing to do with any of these things, then I think it was C.S. Lewis uh, in one of his books uh, that said. Uh, There's two kinds of people. There's the one who say to God, thy will be done. And the others are the ones to whom God says, okay, thy will be done. Yeah. You know, and-
0: You're creating um, your own reality, your own- Yeah, yeah. C.S.
1: Lewis uh, Lewis is probably my favorite author when it comes to any of these kinds of things. And in my own thinking, I certainly didn't copy him, but I certainly respect the ideas that he put forth. Um, In his uh, books like uh, The Great Divorce and some of the others- he gives a sketch which is enough of a human relationship that it is relatable to the reader, but it is odd enough or different enough that it can be a concept of hell or the, um, uh, the intermediate state between heaven and hell. Um, brilliant mind there, not the same mind as yours or mine but a guy with brilliant ideas.
0: Sure. And, yeah.
1: And uh, so I I encourage people to read CS Lewis and if you read my idea of either heaven or hell and don't like it, it's okay with me because you can think originally and come up with something too.
0: Yeah, I love that. So you're not you're not asserting this is the truth. You're saying with everything I know, here's a, a logical explanation. And, and then you're encouraging all of us to do the same. We should be, exactly.
1: we should yep. be elevating
0: our thinking and be thinking about our reality and, and mm-hmm. how these things all fit together. I want to close soon, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the why. The why did God create space-time for humanity? Do you th- is In your book, is it like a gift of love or is it something else?
1: God's love was so great and his imagination so great that he wanted to make a system that would bring forth a creature who was capable of loving God in return. It's, I don't know, I, I'm trying to anthropize God a little bit when I say God would be bored at just having uh, love for his creation, um, that that wouldn't be enough, that the idea that something in his creation could understand God and love him in return is a worthy goal to motivate creating the universe. Interesting. Okay. And the fact that it took 13 and a half billion years is no sweat, you know, because time doesn't matter. God's present to all time. But we are now, and have been for several thousand years, have the ability to, in fact, love God. And that is quite an accomplishment to have come out of the remarkably simple creation that God began with symmetry principles. I think that's a magnificent accomplishment, way beyond anything I could ever imagine. But I'm happy that we are in that situation of being able and being offered the opportunity to love God in return.
0: Okay. Thank you for sharing. I want to make sure that if you have anything else that you wanted to share that wasn't brought up, that you have, you know, you have a chance to do that.
1: Well, I mean, I do want to tell people how to get my book. Uh, Amazon sells it. Um, Most people order from Amazon. And if you're an Amazon Prime member, it gets to your house in about two days. Um, Again, God, Symmetry and Time is the uh, subordinate title, but the first title is Every When. Yes. That's an easy word to find in the book aisle because it isn't there for anything else, right? So I want people to know how to buy it. There's a number of things in the book that I talk about that I, I haven't had much of a chance to go here today, but there are mistakes happening even now on the part of science that need to be understood and corrected. And one of them is what I have called idolatry. Um, there was a great, Line by uh, uh, Pope John Paul II about 30 years ago said, um, "Religion can purify, uh, no, science can purify religion from superstition and mythology or something, and religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes." And the mistake of our time is the belief in false absolutes. If you ask a scientist what's idolatry, you say, "Who me? I don't do that." Aha! Uh-huh, they do. And the worst thing we have going on currently in the early 21st century is an undue belief in the power of computer programs. Uh, Results of computer calculations are no better than the coding, the Fortran, whatever, the assumptions that go in at the front end. And any model is always less than the reality. I think the Hindus 5,000 years ago called it idolatry when you confuse your model with the real thing. And we have had in too many uh, things, including a lot of UN policies that affect people all over the world, a belief in the perfection of computer programs that is very wrong. The programs are very limited. The models are finite. Models are good for checking up on things and leading you in a certain direction. But that belief in the perfection of models is another false god and is a huge mistake. The, the other thing that is a, a problem with many people in the sciences is the, um, you know, you say, golly, look at all these odd coincidences. Isn't it odd that we, we're we here and that this is something goes under the name of the anthropic coincidences. And people some people will say, well, this tells us to look harder at nature and maybe this will point towards God, which it does. And others say, ah, no, there's a multiverse and we're just on the one that got lucky it's all an accident. Mm. Well, when you go look into the multiverse carefully, you find that it is self-contradictory. It is incoherent, it does not make sense and it cannot be. And I've got a chapter called The Mistake of the Multiverse in which I encourage people to look into the details of this sort of thing and understand that that belief in chance alone is not only a religion of its own, but it is an incorrect and incoherent religion. So those, those are two of the chapters that are in the middle of the book, one on the multiverse and one on idolatry. And I think people will do really well to understand a lot of what's going on in the politics of international planning, to understand that idolatry is a huge mistake that's having a bad effect on our world at this time.
0: I'm glad I gave you those last words because those are two really, really big points. <laughs> Really, really big. Thanks, Tom, so much for, for joining me today and, and sharing your wisdom. And it's great to hear from a, a physicist and a man of faith. And I, I think that your your mission is wonderful. And your book is very interesting. And I it, it stretches the mind. It stretches the mind. So if if anybody out there, and I hope people are, I hope people are really into having their mind stretched, you know? We get very, very complacent, but you know reality is different than we than than we think. So let's think outside the box. So I really appreciate you coming today.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me on, Carol. I thank you very much for the opportunity to talk with you.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll have all your links on the podcast page, and thank you everybody for listening. And I now close the spiritual forum. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you can let me know by leaving a positive rating and review on your favorite podcast app, or make a tax-deductible donation at thespiritualforum.org. The Spiritual Forum is a podcast, prayer, and retreat ministry affiliated with Unity Worldwide Ministries. Thank you again for being a part of the Spiritual Forum community, and remember, you are an amazing, divine, and powerful being.